There we go. Just force it. If it doesn't work, hit harder. It is good to be with you guys. So I'm going to read from, uh, we're going to look at Matthew 1 and 2. I don't know if you guys have Bibles here. I mean, have you heard of it before? <laughs> okay, so Matthew, Matthew 1 and 2, uh, just keep it open. I'm not going to read it all. A lot of it's genealogy, and although it is actually fascinating, I'm not going to read all the genealogy, but it is kind of important to keep in front of you. So I'll read some selective verses starting in 1, and then I'll jump down to 17 and then read through the rest of chapter 1. This is Matthew 1. This is God's word to us. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star where it rose and have come to worship him. Father, as we read these words that are maybe to some of us familiar during the Christmas season, maybe they're, maybe they're fresh and they're new to others of us, we ask that you would show us Emmanuel, that you would show us yourself, that you have actually come to us because we desperately need to encounter you. So please give us that encounter. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, New Year's is among us. It is tomorrow. How many of you guys do New Year's resolution? Do you do interaction? Do you talk? Yeah. Okay, all right, good. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? <clears throat> okay, I hate them. Um, and, and I'm not saying that because it's a bad thing. There's nothing wrong, I, there's nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. I, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's my personality very non-committal. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't do New Year's resolutions, but I know it is a big deal. Why is it that people do New Year's resolutions? Since none of you seem to do them, and you probably judge everyone that does, right? Why do, why do you think people do New Year's resolutions? You got thoughts on it? Fresh start. Fresh start. Yeah? 
right? What else? Good intentions. Good, and what do you mean by that? Like, you have good intentions. Okay, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Change. The desire for, right? What was that? Getting better. Getting better. Getting be- absolutely getting better. Change to, to get better, right? I think, I think in some ways it's, we're all trying to either find purpose or live into a purpose too. Would that fit maybe? Like there's a purpose that I'm aiming for and therefore if I make these resolutions, I'm going to align myself with the purpose or I'm just trying to find purpose. So I'm going to put some stuff out there. All right. Matthew here is continuing and he's filling out the biblical story that says our purpose, because we're all looking for it. We're all looking for purpose. Our purpose is found in a greater purpose. I mean, it is true that we often try to cultivate some purpose for ourselves, but I, I find in, as I watch many of us do that, it kind of crumbles over time. If we can't find our purpose in a bigger purpose. And this is what Matthew is doing. He's filling this out, this biblical narrative that there is this greater purpose and we find our purpose in it. What is this purpose? Well, it's coming from the Bible. So this is the purpose of God. And his purpose is what? It's really to restore. I mean, if you really to summarize it, to restore the kingdom of God on earth is in heaven. I mean, that's one simple way of putting Simple in some sense. Simple way of putting it. Our purpose is found, therefore, in his purpose to restore. Whatever your purpose is, it can be found in his purpose to restore things. So what do we learn as we look at this particular passage? How is he working out? How is he living out his purpose? And I want to break it up in three areas and look at it this way. He's working out his purpose through history through interruptions, and through reorientation. I'm just kind of walk through the, through the text by looking at each of these things. What is the big deal with genealogies in the Bible? This is, you don't have to actually answer this out loud, but think about it. The genealogies are a common thing. They're kind of a big deal throughout the biblical narrative. There's, there's lots of things. There's a remembrance of where you came from, of who you are, where you belong. And part of the same reason why we do Ancestry.com. And have, have any of you guys done that? Have you done your history? Yeah. I haven't done it yet. I think my daughter's done it. So I have some idea of maybe where I came from, but I don't remember what it is. It's a big, it's kind of a, it became a big deal a few years ago. Well, it's, 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 there's some similarity. We want to know, like, where are we from? What are we connected to? Here... Matthew is crafting this genealogy very carefully and intentionally to highlight God's work through history. There's very intentional reasons why he's crafting this the way that he is. The end of the genealogy that we we read in verse 17 of chapter 1 says, it reiterates that there's three sets of 14. That's not by accident. He's doing that on purpose. Abraham to David, then David to deportation, then deportation to the Christ. Matthew's giving us this history, but he's also crafting this to communicate something more than just facts about genealogy that leads to just another figure in the Hebrew lineage. Lineage. He's, he's making the point about what God's purpose in all of this is. In and through history, God is doing lots of things. 
But his overarching purpose is to give birth to this one in whom, he says, he is going to restore the world. He's going to restore his kingdom, his kingdom to the world. He's going to reunite, in a sense, heaven and earth. And he's going to fulfill his promise to restore humanity. It's going to bring restoration because there's something not right. How does this help us? Having said all that, how does this help us with our particular purpose? With, with where we are. Matthew doesn't actually tell us in this text, but at the end of his account, you get all the way to the end, Matthew 28, he accounts for Jesus saying, go make disciples and do what to them? So, baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptize them in the genealogy of God. But baptize them into, your, into his family. That is, at least in part, an invitation into adoption, an invitation to be a part of his genealogy. So if we're to, if we're to connect with this, uh, if we're to be adopted into this family, this genealogy of Jesus, this new humanity, we're not only recipients of restoration, we are now invited to participate in his mission of restoration. Right? If you're going to carry on the family heritage, we're not only recipients of this amazing restoration, we're also to be on the mission of restoration. That may not tell you, because I know we're all looking, many of us are looking for, what is the particular purpose that I have? All right, this may not tell you exactly what to do tomorrow. It's, this doesn't tell you who you should marry. This doesn't necessarily tell you what you should do in school, what you should study, what job you should take but it does give you an overarching identity and purpose in whatever it is that you choose, right? What does this look like? Well, in connection to him, we're given a purpose to be about what he's about. He's about restoration, restoration of life, restoration of relationships in this world. This will impact the choices that we make and the way we live, and the way we work, and the way we play, and the things that we choose to invest our time in. And so it, it, it connects us to purpose. Like knowing this genealogy thing of Jesus and our adoption into it, if you choose to be a part of his family, right? It not only connects us to purpose, but it also gives us hope in the chaos. It also gives us hope in the uncertainty. As we attempt to live this way, it helps to remember when things don't go quite like we want. And I'm just assuming that most of you have experienced things not going quite like you want, or as fast as you want, or we wonder if God is real. I mean, is this just a facade? I mean, is this just something that someone made up to make us feel better, or if this if he's really about this kind of a purpose, when we experience that, we're honest about that, it helps us to remember his purpose is typically worked out over a very long time. We call it generations of time. Through the very messy, convoluted people and situations that we face. You guys did the mothers of Jesus, right? Okay. If you didn't get anything from that, hopefully you got, it's a messy genealogy. I'm assuming you covered that, right? It's a messy genealogy. We get to play a small part 
We get to play a small role. We get to play a note in a symphony that he's creating. And one day in this future epiphany of his revelation, of his return, he's going to bring it all together. He's going to fully restore all things. And each of those notes are going to play this fantastic song that we get to, oh, I heard it. You get to hear it, little moments right now. That's our life right now. We get to rest in the fact that God is working through history that finds its climax, its meaning, its hope in this one who is at the end of the genealogy, that we are part of that history. And we get to be little candles of his light in a dark world. Confident, we can actually have confidence that his light and his way of being human will one day overtake the darkness. He does win out. Okay, God is working through history, right? That's important for us, I think, in knowing our purpose. But then Matthew moves on uh, from giving kind of this perspective that encompasses thousands of years of history, right? This is the genealogy to a moment in time, to a specific, very particular moment in time. All right, I'm just going to read some of this again. Now, this is in verse 19 of chapter 1. Yeah, I think it's 1. Yes, 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before the, they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, we get Joseph's real reaction at this point. He's like, uh, sure. Okay, sure. I mean, that is his reaction. Why do we know that? Because he's planning on... He, he's, a, he's a just man. He was a kind man. He was going to quietly dismiss her, meaning what? He doesn't believe this at first. He, he's he's going to quietly put her aside. But in the midst of this, which I'm sure is head spinning at this time, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And he goes on, he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's what it literally means. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took Mary as his wife, and you are not until she had given birth. And he did call his name Jesus. There's a lot here, and there's all kind of different interpretations of some of the things and the passages that he's referencing when he references uh, an old prophet, Isaiah. It's all kind of stuff going on here. The text, the text is telling us a lot of things, but, but here, and, and, there's, and there's questions about what all this means, but here's what's clear. God has been working out a plan, and he's working towards this historic moment. He's been doing this for, for a really long time. And Joseph and Mary got to participate in this climactic moment by having their lives interrupted. They had their lives turned upside down. That's how they got to be a part of God's purpose. Through the interruption, the one conceived in Mary, that was the interruption, was, this is what we're told, was God coming to be with us and God coming to be a savior for us. The interruption is what brought that into being. This was God working out his purpose. 
by interrupting the norm. He's doing that in what feels like a very strange way, by becoming one of us. I mean, that's just weird, right? It's definitely an interruption to the norm. But equally strange, it's in quietness. It, it is in humility. It is in gentleness through the vulner, vulnerability of an embryo. Not the might and the power descending from on high from the clouds. The maker of the galaxies became a cell. And he came not just to be with us, but it says he came, he came to save us. His interruption was to save us from our from our sins is what it says, for God to restore his kingdom to the world and for us to be present with him in that kingdom, for us to be fit for the kingdom, for us to be ambassadors of that kingdom, he had to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He had to interrupt in a way that we had to have him interrupt. He had to interrupt our way of being to save us into a new way of being. This all required, and it continues to require him to interrupt our norms. Where is he interrupting your norm? Here's the, the invitation to, to ponder, to think on as you end the year and you start a new year. Because one thing I can guarantee you, I am prophetic. You will have interruptions. There's your prophecy for the morning. You will have interruptions, and you're experiencing interruptions right now. Where is he doing that in your life? Might this be a way not only to get your attention, but maybe to invite you into a deeper reality of his purpose? Maybe his interruption is actually an invitation to encounter his purpose, for you to find rest in him being with you now. Maybe the interruption is him wanting to draw you near, offering some kind of salvation rescue for you very particularly in the interruption. And then for us to, if that's the case, then meditate on this. Like, this might help us figure out how to live out our purpose in the particular moments that we're facing as we, as we think on it this way. Seeing the interruption that Mary and Joseph experience can give us a new perspective on our interruptions. I hate interruptions. I don't like them. I don't like them. But I often need things I don't like, right? Maybe this will give us a different perspective on our interruptions that we're facing that seem to be annoyances or distractions. Maybe they're even tragedies, and maybe they are actually tragedies. But maybe the tragedy and the, the annoyance, maybe the distraction is part of his purpose to restore you. Then we move into chapter 2, and we encounter something that happened after Jesus is born. So this is the beginning of chapter 2. In the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men, the magi, from the east came to Jerusalem. We don't, we don't know who these guys were exactly, probably from Arabia or someplace like that. We're, it's from the far east. It's far Land far, far away, all right? For Matthew's purpose, these dignitaries represented the nations. There's a reason he's wanting to focus in on this. They were the, the Gentiles and the non-Jews, those who were outside of Israel who were being reoriented toward the king of Israel, 
Those that are way outside are being reoriented. These representatives of the nation show up in Jerusalem and at Herod's doorstep. And they're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star. It, it rose, and we've come to worship him. Herod heard that uh, Herod the king heard this, and he was slightly troubled, <laughs> and all the all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He told them, Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written. Micah wrote about this. Bethlehem, land of Judah, you're by least the mean, the, the least among uh, Judah, from you shall come the ruler. And then Herod summoned all the wise men secretly, ascertaining from them what time the star had appeared. And he set, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go search diligently, go look for him. And then come back, tell me what you find. I want to come and worship him too. After listening to the king, they went their own way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, deport, they departed to their own country by another way. Okay, this raises all kind of questions for our modern and our, and our postmodern minds. And you're all of your, I know there's lots of like engineers and PhD kind of people here. You have all kind of questions. We have all kind of questions about what's happening here, but for we don't know all the details of what the star is and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and apparently Matthew didn't think it was important enough to tell us. It's not part of what he's super concerned about. What's it, what is the star? Uh, how did it lead them? How, how did their astronomy or their astrology give them information about this Jewish king? All, right, all kind of theories about that. Brad will give you all the theories that you want to know. Go ask him some other time. Regardless of what it was, the purpose of Matthew writing is not to tell us everything that we want to know. What is the purpose? What are we to take from this? Here's, here's something to take from it. God can use whatever He wants to reorient us. He can use whatever He wants to reorient us. What does reorienting involve? Challenging our control over things and drawing us to a better king. That's His reorientation. Not even the Bible is meant to tell you everything about how he works. It is to lead us to the God who is at work. Man, that, that has been hitting home for me over the last few years mightily. The Bible's not to tell you everything you want to know about how God works. It's to get you to the God who's at work. The star may be a mystery to us. But what's the point there? The Magi from the East, they're excited about seeing the star. Why? Did they just stay home and they examine the details of the star and try to... There's nothing wrong with examining the stars. But that's not, what they, that's not what they did. They didn't just hang out trying to figure out what the star was about. No, they, they let it lead them. They let it reorient them to the greater revelation to a house where a child was with his mother. They let it reorient them to this one. What's happening here? What, what's the image Matthew's painting? God is reorienting things. He's getting the attention of the nations 
He's drawing them in, and they are willfully, they are joyful. Nobody's forcing these guys to go. They are joyfully coming to him, to this king. And he's challenging the control of those that are in power. Both of these things are happening at the same same time. Those who should be flocking to him. Who is that? It's, It's Herod and the chief priests and the scribes. All these religious guys, they should be flocking. Where are they? Herod's petrified, and he's paranoid. So he does what he can to kill any hope of this child taking his throne. And that's the rest of Matthew chapter 2 you can read, where he slaughters little babies because he doesn't want someone taking his throne. What do we see in all this? What do do we see about God's purpose in all this? He uses all kinds of things, stars and nature and things that appear beyond natural. Even things that we may see as suspect, maybe even things we look at and we say, that's bad, that's not good. There may be things even like that that he uses to reorient us. I mean, I could tell you a gazillion examples of watching some really horrible shows and movies and being convicted by God in the midst of watching those things, right? This is how God works. He challenges, he challenges our destructive need for control, and he draws us to his better king. Where is he using things? Where is he using people? Where is he using circumstances to reorient you right now? As you end the year and you start anew, where is he bringing maybe that interruption to reorient? Reality is his challenge to my rule and his offer of another king is a threat to, I think, all of us, especially as we start. And then ongoingly, his challenge to my control and his offer of a king is an ongoing threat to me. We want to destroy any challenge to the throne. I mean, that's our, I think that's our default, or I would call it a broken default. So if God's purpose is to rule the world and restore the world through the, the, this king, we have to honestly be attracted to him and willfully, joyfully bow down to him. Like, it doesn't work any other way. If he forces his rule upon you, it just doesn't work. How can this change of desire ever happen? How can, how can this deep-seated desire for control be, be relinquished? We have to be um, awakened, woke. <laughs> we have to believe and trust that the restoration of the world and his restoration for me involves me relinquishing control. I think we've got to actually come to like a deep-seated belief, conviction, or at least start to believe that, that I have to relinquish control. He invites us to surrender our crown, our rule, because our obsessive need for self-rule is the very thing that is killing us. It's the very thing that's dragging us back into the chaos of decreation. It's the reason we need restoration. It is what we call sin. 
That's one way to categorize sin. It's my desire to control from which I need to be saved. And we have to be awakened to this reality. If you're not awakened to the reality, there's, it's, I don't know that we can go a whole lot farther, right? I mean, this is what you were praying in the confession. And, and, and we need to constantly be reminded because sometimes we're not convinced that our control is bad. Sometimes. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we, we need the interruption. But maybe even more, okay, we, we need to realize that our control is actually destroying us. We're going into decreation when we actually exert this control. But even more, we need to see the kind of king that's being offered to us. We need to see who he is. And yes, we need to see he's the, I mean, it is kind of a big deal. He's a culmination of history from the line of Abraham and David who gives birth to a new humanity. That's kind of a big deal. Yeah, we absolutely need to see that. The the interruption of God to be with us and to save us, that is a big deal. We need to see that. But ultimately, I don't know that that really has a power to change my inner workings. I mean, intellectually, it makes sense and it's important to see, but ultimately, his rule draws us when we see, for me, okay, this is for me, ultimately, his rule draws me when I see what kind of rule it is. He comes like this, quiet to a poor, unassuming couple who's going to be carried away by his parents as a helpless baby into Egypt. Okay, that's the end of chapter 2. Because the reigning king wants him dead. So rather than fighting, he lays aside the power to save himself. What kind of king is that? Okay, I don't know. That's the king. That's how the king begins. Jesus turns kingship upside down. Or you could say, I would say, he turns it right side up. Even as he grows up and he comes into his own, how does he live? Well, he never takes for himself. I mean, think about his life. Whatever you know about his life, read the gospel accounts. He never takes for himself, nor does, nor does he force his way. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't force his kingdom on, on anybody, nor does he use his power for personal gain. I mean, where, did, where in the accounts has he ever used it for his personal gain? I don't see it anywhere. But instead, he uses his power and he uses his influence to do what? To actually serve others, to bring healing and health and hospitality and wholeness and restoration, constantly doing what he considers, this is what he calls it, this is, I only do the work of my father. Well, apparently, this is the work of his father, which is what? Well, I mean... It's loving, and it's working for the good of others, and, it, and it's inviting all to receive him and to receive this kind of love and, and this grace, and he has to follow and to enter into his kingdom, and though many try to push him into being another kind of king, like we see that over and over again, he refuses to be crowned by them. He won't accept their kind of kingship until the end when the only crown he accepts is made of thorns and the only throne he accepts is to be impaled on a wooden stick. 
And here is the part that is, I mean, for me, I'm still trying to comprehend this. Then in all of this, all of these interruptions, okay, all of these interruptions to his own life, he was exercising his rule as king. This is how he lived out. This is how he fulfilled God's purpose to restore the true kingdom of God on earth and to make a way through our hate and through our death and through our own destructive need for control to make a way through that to new life, for us to be born into a new kind of humanity, into his family tree to enjoy his kingdom now and forevermore, to be beneficiaries of his mission accomplished. You do nothing. You eat and you drink. If this attracts us, I mean, if this, if this grabs our attention and our affection and our imagination, if we're caught into his purpose, it then informs and it transforms and it gives definition to your particular purpose, whatever that might be, compelling us in whatever that purpose might be to spread his life of restoration on earth as in heaven. Father, we thank you that you've chosen not to <laughs> you've chosen not to let us be king. As much as we fight and scrape and kill and hate to try to grab hold of it, you enter into a world and you accept our hating and our fighting and our scraping and our nailing, and our killing, so that you can take it away from us, and so that you might rule as the true and better king who only works for the good of his subjects. Jesus, help us see you in that way, we ask in your name. Amen.